It was a cold January day in 1983. Two young boys are playing in a wooded lot behind a Burger King off Route 35 in New Jersey when they make a gruesome discovery. The body of 18-year-old Anna Olesowicz with four bullets in her head. She is only one of the possible 150 victims of Richard Bagenwald, a once troubled child turned serial killer. I'm Katie Kaplan, an investigative journalist. And I'm M, a former special agent, and you're listening to Two Sleuths. Warning. This podcast contains graphic content that may not be suitable for all listeners. All suspects or persons of interest discussed on this podcast are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Listener discretion advised. Those who are interested in true crime often feel the need to understand criminals. We wonder what could possibly be going on inside their head. We question if we knew that person, would we have seen the signs? And we ponder deeper questions such as, what makes a killer? Are they born or are they bred? The argument between nature versus nurture is often at the heart of many psychological research studies, and yet there's no definitive answer. The circumstances vary from one killer to another. And sometimes you have a killer who seems both born and bred to become a truly heinous monster. And today, we're going to be talking about one of those monsters. Richard Bagenwald was only convicted of six murders. However, he's been linked to eight. And after his conviction, he tried to spin a deal with prosecutors in exchange for a confession to 25 more. His own defense attorney would later say he believed there were at least 150 people who fell victim to Richard during the course of his life. And a quick note on the pronunciation of his name. His defense attorney says Bagenwald, a guy who wrote a book on the case, says Begenwald, a former detective who was interviewed, says Begenwald, and old news footage of a reporter says Begenwald. So we're just going to call him Richard from here on out. Now, Richard was an only child, born August 24, 1940, in Rockland County, New York. His parents, Albert and Sally, were a young couple who lived with Sally's father in Staten Island after welcoming home their baby boy. In the beginning, it was reported to be a healthy, normal relationship. But after a terrible train accident that would claim Albert's leg, he was unable to provide for his family. And it was quite a blow, as he was the sole income earner, and he ended up turning to the bottle, taking his anger and frustration out on his wife and son with verbal and physical abuse. Little Richard was said to have very odd and unusual behavior since he was a baby, and he grew into a troubled little boy. This seemed to only aggravate his father and his alcoholism. According to reports, Albert had little to nothing to do with caring for his son and was even quoted years later as saying Richard had always been a bad kid. Richard's bizarre behavior came to a head when he was only five years old and he tried to set their house on fire. Sally said she didn't know what to do, and so she sent Richard away to a nearby children's psychiatric hospital where he stayed in residential treatment for years. During the next three years, Richard was only allowed to go home occasionally for weekend visits, and his mother rarely came to see him, claiming it was too hard to make the one-hour trip to go visit him. 
Now, these are formative years, and while we know Richard would go on to be a brutal killer, at this point, he was still just a kid, and he had been abandoned by his parents, one of whom had been abusive his entire life. Richard had already been showing troubling signs before he was sent to the psychiatric hospital, but I do wonder if the trauma of feeling abandoned at such a young age maybe exacerbated the trajectory of his adult life, because it was said that during these first years away, when he was allowed to visit home, he began torturing animals, among various other negative antisocial behaviors. By the time he was released from that children's psych hospital at the age of eight, Richard had started drinking. His mother had become fed up with the lack of progress in his behavior, and so she moved him from the facility in Rockland County to Bellevue Hospital, Manhattan. Bellevue is now the oldest public hospital in the United States. Back around 1948, it was home to the first public school for emotionally disturbed children located in a public hospital, which had opened a little more than a decade before. After he was admitted, Richard was diagnosed as schizophrenic, which explained a lot in regards to the behavior his mother had seen in him starting as a toddler. After this diagnosis, eight-year-old Richard was treated with electroshock therapy at least 20 times. This was something that Bellevue did pretty liberally to children back then, and a method that is now considered controversial. Over the years, this treatment has evolved to what we now call electroconvulsive therapy. But yet again, his mother found that Richard's behavior hadn't changed, and she still believed that she wasn't capable of handling him. So she moved him again, and this time it was the School for Boys in Warwick, New York. Now, this was advertised as a home for troubled boys, and Richard proved to be just that for school administrators. He attempted to escape from the school, and he actually roped other kids into helping him plan robberies. He also engaged in gambling, drinking, and smoking while he was there, and administrators noted that he had an extreme fascination with death. At the age of 11, during one of his rare home visits, Richard set himself on fire. And that sounds like a pretty extreme act, but based off of our research, I thought it was interesting that I couldn't seem to find any other explanation about this incident or what the extent of the fire or injuries to Richard actually were. By the age of 16, Richard was moved from the Trouble Boys home and for the first time in his life enrolled in public school. This doesn't appear to be the result of good behavior because he was arrested several times for stealing cars after this, and he soon dropped out of school and then moved to Nashville. And by the time he was 18 years old, he had landed himself in a federal reformatory for auto theft. About a year later, he was released, and he ended up making his way back home to Staten Island. As a young adult who had spent his entire life bouncing between psychiatric centers and reform schools, Richard never really seemed to be one who was able to make or retain friends. Likely, it was his personality that was a turnoff, among other things, as he was described as cold, assertive, and manipulative. It wouldn't be until he arrived home after his first prison stint that he actually made his first friend. James, or Jimmy Sparnroft, was Richard's opposite in every way. He was raised in a Catholic home with both of his parents present, and he was said to have a friendly demeanor and had never been in trouble with the law. Beyond their personalities and home lives, their looks couldn't have been more different either. Jimmy was often compared to Elvis because of his jet black hair and olive skin, and Richard was the polar opposite with a pale complexion, bright red hair, and blue eyes. 
It's unclear how their paths crossed, but however it happened, it would alter the trajectory of Jimmy's relatively normal life. Now, Jimmy noticed Richard's short fuse and aggressive nature pretty early on. According to one incident discussed in a book we read for this case called Jersey Shore Thrill Killer by John O'Rourke, Jimmy recounted a time when he and Richard came across two women and they invited him to share a bottle of wine. While chatting and passing the bottle back and forth, out of nowhere, Richard grabbed the bottle and forcefully hit one of the women in the head with it. Apparently, Jimmy had already realized that Richard was a bit of a lunatic at this point. And in this specific incident, Jimmy just ignored it because he was afraid that if he spoke up, Richard would turn his violent outburst towards him. Jimmy says it was only a few weeks into this newfound friendship when Richard started asking about a gun. He wanted to get his hands on one, and Jimmy helped him to get a shotgun. Once he had it, Richard then reportedly began illegally modifying it. He sawed off the barrel and then the stock, making it small enough to hide in a coat. Once December arrived in New York, he and Jimmy ventured out on the town with the sawed-off shotgun concealed in Richard's winter jacket. It was December 18, 1958. 47-year-old Stephen Sladowski wrapped up another hard day's work as a criminal prosecutor for the state. By all accounts, he was a man who was extremely well-liked and respected, and he and his wife Estelle were pillars of the community and were known to spend much of their spare time working together at a delicatessen in their hometown of Bayonne, New Jersey. That night, Stephen left the DA's office and headed to the deli to put in just a few more hours of work before heading home to Estelle and their four children. On this same afternoon, just across the river, Richard had spent hours throwing back drinks at a local bar waiting for Jimmy to get off of work. When the time drew nearer to meet up, Richard headed out and began looking for a car to steal, something we know was a favorite pastime of his. He came across a cream 1952 Mercury and hot-wired it. The engine turned, and off he went to meet Jimmy at their prearranged spot. Once they connected, they found themselves roaming the streets of Bayonne, looking for a place to rob. And they set their sights on a populated store, and they spent time watching it. But it seemed that the customers never really thinned out, so they decided to move on and look for a quieter shop. It was then that they came across Stephen's Deli. Richard and Jimmy watched as Stephen was behind the counter talking to the sole patron of the store. As soon as that patron left, Richard instructed Jimmy to move over to the driver's seat so that he could quickly drive off when he came back to the car. Richard exited the vehicle and headed into the store with the sawed-off shotgun concealed beneath his winter coat. Richard entered the store and approached Stephen, demanding money. Stephen refused, and at that point, Richard pulled out that sawed-off shotgun, pointed it at Stephen, and pulled the trigger. As Stephen laid on the ground, bleeding out, Richard stole his wallet and then left, without even trying to open the cash register. Because of that, some speculate that maybe Richard's motive wasn't robbery. Maybe he just wanted to use his new sawed-off shotgun to shoot someone. After the fatal shot was fired, Richard ran back out to the street where Jimmy was still waiting in the Mercury. He hopped in the passenger side and fired one more shot back toward the store as the car began to speed off, the large front window of the deli shattering into a thousand pieces. A few streets away, Jimmy pulled over so Richard could jump behind the wheel and drive them back to the ferry. They abandoned the Mercury, and Richard took the time to thoroughly wipe down the car to remove any fingerprints. The two then walked to the ferry and headed back to Staten Island. Back at the crime scene, police had responded, and they found that Stephen had passed away from the gunshot wound. 
a man who lived in the apartment directly above the shop, was interviewed by police. He told them he was watching TV when he thought he heard what sounded like an explosion, and that ended up being the gunshots that were happening downstairs. By the time he got there, he found Stephen lying in blood. And there were four other witnesses, teenagers who had been hanging out on the street near the shop. One of them said he got a decent look at the shooter and thought that he was a pretty young guy, maybe about 20 years old. And then another one of the youths had been standing close to that getaway car, and he was able to memorize the license plate of the Mercury. Both of these things, the fact that there was a getaway driver as well as having the actual license plate for that car, ended up being a vital piece of information for the police. It only took a few hours for them to locate the car, and they noticed it had been left near the ferry and several bus lines, so they assumed the killers had changed their mode of transportation. Luckily for detectives, while wiping down the vehicle, Richard missed a single fingerprint on the rearview mirror, and it was collected as evidence. The next day, the murder was splashed across the papers. According to reports, Richard thought he had only injured Stephen, but learned he had actually died from one of those newspaper articles covering the crime. He decided he had to skip town and called Jimmy to tell them they both needed to get out of Dodge. But Jimmy refused. He told Richard he hadn't done anything and he had no reason to run. But Richard said that he would be charged for not only providing the murder weapon, but also driving the getaway car. And so Jimmy agreed, and the two met up. They stole yet another car, this time a 1951 Oldsmobile, and headed south. They passed through Delaware and into Maryland. And this is where Richard made a big mistake. As the story goes, Richard was driving through the town of Salisbury when he suddenly noticed he was approaching a red light. He slammed on the brakes, and the car came to an abrupt stop. When he looked about, he realized the vehicle sitting next to him at the stoplight belonged to a state trooper. In a rash decision, he hit the gas, running through the red light. As soon as he took off, the trooper hit his lights and siren and began to chase the Oldsmobile. It was several miles before Richard finally pulled over on a sparsely populated road. But he didn't pull over to surrender. As the trooper approached his vehicle, Richard watched him through the side mirror and at the same time pulled out the shotgun. He waited until the trooper got near the driver's side window, and then he leaned out and shot him in the face. Despite his injuries, the trooper retreated to his vehicle and was able to return fire. He shot off several rounds, but they all missed. Richard fired his shotgun once more before hitting the gas and taking off. Fortunately, that second shot missed as the trooper was already back to his car. He radioed out a shots fired call, and he was able to relay his location, as well as the description of the suspects, the vehicle, and the license plate number. Incredibly, after being shot in the face, the trooper was able to drive himself to the hospital. As you can imagine, the Maryland Highway Patrol responded in full force, converging on the area where the altercation took place. A second trooper was heading down the desolate road when he saw headlights coming toward him. Once the vehicle passed, he was able to get a better look. It was an Oldsmobile, matching the suspect vehicle description. He quickly pulled a U-turn and sped up behind the car. The license plate was an exact match. He radioed ahead, providing their location, and called for a roadblock ahead. Before reaching the roadblock, Richard pulled over again. But this time, he didn't stay in the car. He jumped out and immediately started pumping off shots. This time, the trooper was hit in the leg, but he had been ready for an altercation, and he was able to get off some rounds of his own, one of which hit Richard in the left side of the face. 
Despite his leg injury, the trooper ran up to Richard, who had fallen on the ground. As he approached, Richard lunged for the shotgun that had fallen beside him, but the trooper was able to kick it away just in the nick of time. He threw some handcuffs on him, and the fight was over. Meanwhile, Jimmy didn't put up much of a fight himself, and he too was taken into custody. Finally, the entire ordeal was over. Incredibly, both troopers who engaged with Richard that night survived. Richard did too, despite the shot to his face. Jimmy remained cooperative. With Richard in the hospital, police were able to interview him first. Jimmy spilled the beans on everything. He told them how Richard had opened fire on both troopers that night, and he also told them about a murder. Maryland police got more than they bargained for when they found out Richard was also responsible for the murder of a state prosecutor in New Jersey just a few days before. After receiving this information, Maryland police called over to the authorities in New Jersey and said that they had two men in custody, one of which had confessed to a murder in their state. Now, this was really quite impressive interagency cooperation, especially considering how things were back then, everyone wanting credit and not wanting to share. To be quite honest, it's still an issue I see today, but from working with some of the old timers throughout my career, they've told me that it was much worse back in the day. So what made this all the more unique was that Maryland had a two-time cop shooter in its custody, but they were still willing to loop in New Jersey and invite them down to conduct their own interviews about their homicide case. New Jersey police interviewed Richard in regards to the robbery and murder at the deli of attorney Stephen Slodowski, and he didn't hesitate for a second in detailing everything that had happened that night. Investigators would later remark how cold and emotionless Richard was as he vividly recounted his crimes. After the interview, the state of Maryland allowed officials in New Jersey to bring both Jimmy and Richard back up north to face charges in the killing. Both pleaded no contest in court. Richard was only 19 at this time. During the sentencing, his attorney asked the court to be lenient, pointing out that he had already spent 10 years, more than half of his life, institutionalized. However, the presiding Judge Reeves knew Stephen Slodowski, the victim in this case, as he was a prosecutor and well-known by each judge. And so when the time came to sentence Richard, Judge Reeves said, quote, By the way, have you noticed that no one here in court has mentioned the name of Stephen Slodowski? He stood where you were standing right now and pleaded his last case. He was one of the finest lawyers in the county, a public official, one of the finest, cleanest-cut men I ever saw in court a man of integrity, a man with a fine wife and family, end quote. And with that, the judge sentenced Richard to life in prison, and he gave Jimmy a sentence of 25 years to life. And that should have been the end of the story. One man was sentenced to life, the other at least 25 years for the senseless and random killing of a beloved father, husband, and productive member of the community. However, Richard's life sentence also held the possibility of parole. Richard served his time in New Jersey Trenton State Prison, where he was far from a model inmate. In fact, he was a regular offender, committing some infractions that sent him into solitary confinement. One such infraction resulted from a prison job he took in a machine shop. Now, sources stated that Richard had been caught making parts for firearms and creating ammunition, and for that, he received a two-year stint in solitary confinement. In 1967, eight years into Richard's life sentence, he was transferred to Rahway State Prison. He was there during the infamous 1971 Thanksgiving Day Riot. 
It was 24 hours of chaos as the warden and five guards were taken hostage by the prisoners. Now, in a prison of approximately 1,100 inmates, 500 of them participated in the riot. So there was basically a 50-50 chance that Richard might have been a part of this. It was in Rahway Prison where Richard would cross paths and make friends with a man named Darren Fitzgerald. This chance meeting would lay the foundation for a rash of violent crimes down the road. For seven years, they lived within the same prison wing. Darren was serving a 30-year sentence for robbing a housing authority building and kidnapping a police sergeant and guard. But he also had a lengthy criminal past, and he was a bit of a wild card. He was a self-proclaimed hitman who once served as a Navy paratrooper. He was also a big-time weapons guy. For example, during his robbery and kidnapping, he was found wearing a woman's girdle, which he had used to hold numerous firearms. Sixteen years into his life sentence, Richard had made three appeals to the parole board, all of which were denied. On his fourth attempt, however, the board granted his parole, and on June 24, 1975, 35-year-old Richard re-entered society. He stayed in New Jersey and found work as a house painter, and other odd jobs he was able to pick up around various auto body shops. Shortly after he was released, he was at home visiting his mother in Staten Island when he ran into 16-year-old Diane Marcellus. Despite their 19-year age difference, the two began dating. Now, Diane was described as a very smart, friendly, and extremely attractive woman. So no one understood why she became infatuated with an ex-convict more than twice her age. Years later, it would be discovered that Richard had introduced the impressionable young teen to drugs and got her addicted. So therefore, she became addicted to Richard. After two years together, when Diane turned 18, she announced to her parents that she and Richard were going to be getting married. Her family was furious, and her father outright forbade Diane from marrying him. Not long into the engagement, Richard was driving alone down an isolated road in New Jersey when he came upon a woman who was hitchhiking. Keep in mind, this was not uncommon for people to do back in the 70s. So he pulled over and offered her a ride. She jumped in the front seat and off they went. Along the way, Richard allegedly pulled over and began to assault her. At some point in the attack, she was able to get her door open and she toppled out of the car. She got up and took off running. And for whatever reason, Richard didn't try to chase her, and instead he drove off. After she broke free of Richard, she ran straight to the police and was able to give a detailed description of her attacker and his vehicle. Police were able to use her information to determine that it was likely Richard who matched up with the information she provided. They released an announcement naming Richard as a suspect in the attempted rape case and said that he was wanted for questioning. Richard caught wind that the police were looking for him, and as he was still on parole, Richard decided to live life on the run as a fugitive. And he spent the next three years successfully evading police. That is until 1980, when he was at a party in Brooklyn and police apprehended him. During those three years he spent on the run, Diane had been waiting for him. So as soon as he was arrested, she went to the jail so they could tie the knot. According to reports, they were married inside of his cell. Now, police were planning to have the victim come in and look at a lineup and hope she could pick Richard out. In the meantime, Richard met with his attorney, a man named Lou Diamond. He was just a young attorney back then, but is still a big name in the criminal defense world today. He's a really interesting guy who actually had his own show at one point. 
According to one book, he was a Staten Island kid with family ties to the mob. His grandfather was allegedly a bookmaker, and his godfather was John D'Alessio, also known as Johnny D., who's known for his work running an illegal gambling ring for the infamous Gambino crime family. Now, Lou Diamond ended up putting himself through law school, ironically, while working as a bouncer for the Gambino family member, Tommy Bellotti. Now, after law school and starting a successful career as a defense attorney, his win record was noticed by mobster Paul Castellano, who eventually took over as head of the Gambino crime family until he was eventually killed during an assassination ordered by John Gotti. Now, Castellano began hiring Lou to represent and defend some of the mobsters in their family back then. So when Richard was arrested, apparently Lou got a call from the mob and asked them if they would take Richard's case. Now, prior to this, there was nothing to suggest that Richard actually had any mob ties, but it was suggested that the mob was aware of him and his criminal record, and they wanted to put a guy like him on their payroll. So they decided to provide him with defense attorney Lou Diamond. Their goal being to get Richard off these current charges and then hiring him because he was one of those guys who didn't have any emotions and could kill without an ounce of remorse, on top of the fact that they thought he was loyal and could keep his mouth shut. After that call, Lou found himself sitting in a room with Richard the day before that police lineup was scheduled to take place. As an attorney, Lou had access to the details of the investigation, including what the victim was accusing his client of. He knew the victim had told police the perpetrator was a man with red hair and blue eyes, a relatively unique combo and very identifying. According to his own account, Lou says that as he stood up to leave the room after meeting with Richard, he turned to him and said, you know, from what I understand, they're going to do a lineup tomorrow. You have a very odd hair color. And then he left. And wouldn't you know it, the next morning when the guard pulled Richard from his cell to bring him to the lineup, he was completely bald. Now, the prosecutor who was present with the victim saw this and halted the lineup. It was an obvious problem, and after some arguing back and forth, everyone determined it would only be a fair lineup if everyone who was presented to the victim was wearing a hat. Now, it had been three years since the victim had seen him, and memory can be a tricky thing, especially when you've got a ball cap kind of concealing the perpetrator's eyes. So after viewing the men presented to her, she was unable to pick anybody out of the lineup. And because of that, the charges against Richard were dropped. Now, Lou would actually go on to represent Richard again years later, and he would recall that first arrest and said, I think we all know what Richard really had planned for that girl. Richard only had to serve a few months in prison for violating parole for skipping town for three years while trying to evade that attempted rape charge. He was then, once again, released back into society to live amongst the rest of us. And that is when the disappearances began. Join us next Tuesday for part two, when we'll dive into Richard Bagenwald, the serial killer. Stephen Slodowski didn't deserve to die, but he deserves to be remembered. That does it for today's episode, Sleuths. Please share out this episode and any others you've liked. And in the meantime, stay vigilant. And stay curious, fellow sleuths.